How did the online world get so extreme and so ugly? Andrew Morantz will be here to discuss his new book, Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Do older women keep getting better or do we just get older? Gail Collins will be here to talk about her new book, No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, our critics will talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Andrew Morantz joins us now from Chicago. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of a new book called Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. These sound like pretty not nice people that you researched for this book. I don't want to bum people out too much with the subject matter, and I don't think of it as purely just trying to dunk people's heads in the scary toilet bowl of the internet. You know, my goal is not to just sort of tour people through the badness and show it and say, hey, look at all these bad people. There is an element of that. And I was spending three years hanging out in person primarily and also online with some pretty odious people. But it's really a a kind of a test case for what the internet can do to us and kind of how we can understand it well enough to to pull ourselves out of it. So it's not merely just gawking. So you'll inject a teeny bit of hope, perhaps, into this world. Some hope, some some diagnosis of where we're at. And also, I thought of it, to use a kind of nerdy philosophical term, I thought of the whole thing as a kind of reductio ad absurdum, that if we had a functional informational landscape, this is not where we would have ended up. So it's really sort of about how information and technology and media have led us to the place we're at now and how we got here. All right. Before we get into the topic, which is very serious, on a lighter note, perhaps, I couldn't help but I don't know if you've seen this movie on an airplane long shot with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Have you heard about this or seen it? I have. I haven't seen it. Okay, so it opens up with a journalist, a sort of gonzo journalist embedding himself with neo-Nazis and white nationalists and that whole world to write about them. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't help but, but picture that. But in all seriousness, What was it like meeting these people in person, and how hard was it to break into this world? The people I was going to, it was a whole range. It it wasn't purely neo-Nazis. There were some neo-Nazis who were very not thrilled about me being Jewish, and that really became an issue with them way more than I expected. I didn't expect the anti-Semitism to be so front and center with some people. The, The Jews are really kind of at the center of their dark cosmology. And with them, that was really an issue. I mean, there were people who would talk to me for hours and hours and then sort of halt in the middle of an interview and go, wait, you're not a Jew, are you? And I'd be like, come on, man, if you're a professional anti-Semite for a living and you can't figure me out, you're not good at your job. So that became awkward. I mean, what happened when you said yes? They would kind of get flustered. And one guy in particular, he had a podcast called The Daily Shoah, which was his very funny pun about the Holocaust. He was a real, true dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite. And he would brag to his followers about how he had such good Judar, as he called it, because they're obsessed with how Jews can pass as white, even though by their lights, they're not really white. So he would constantly warn his listeners, you know, you guys don't get it, but I do because I grew up in the Northeast. He actually was from this very 
very multicultural, bucolic New Jersey suburb where his father taught Beowulf at college. I mean, it was really like kind of the progressive dream turned progressive nightmare. And his parents ended up disowning him. And it was a whole thing. And he actually, as a sidebar, was married to a Jewish woman, which was complicated for him. So he was his own kind of little Philip Roth novel of a person. This is just sort of like one chapter of the book. But when I start going down that that rabbit hole with him, and then he finally finds out that I'm Jewish in the middle of an interview, he gets very flustered. He says, you had red hair, so that really threw me off. You know, and I'm like, again, you should have had that on your list of things to watch out for. Right. It happens. Yeah, it does happen. But then we kept talking for hours. I suggested that we meet up in person, and he picked a German beer hall for us to meet at. And, you know, they, they were constantly trying to throw me off my game. And sometimes it worked. I mean, I, I have to say, sometimes their, their trolling was effective, even at the level of kind of unnerving me. Other times it really didn't, and I found it kind of clownish and silly. Like when I showed up at a German beer hall, I was like, okay, you know, I'm just going to sit here and let you do your thing and try to, you know, he tried to have an argument with me about Israel, which I did not indulge him in. But for the most part, the earlier parts of the book, I really kind of turned to the, the deeper Nazi stuff after Charlottesville when it just became clear that that was a national issue that I couldn't look away from. The earlier stuff was more about what they call the alt-light as opposed to the alt-right. Mm-hmm. So that was people who are misogynist, people who are Islamophobic, but they fall on the correct side of what they call the JQ, which is the Jewish question. These are people who were fine with my being Jewish, and they really are more motivated, I would say, by misogyny and xenophobia and other things. And when I was in those spaces, I never felt unsafe. I just had to hold my tongue, you know, and not object to everything I found objectionable, or I just would never have, (laughs) I wouldn't have been able to be a fly on the wall for three years. I would have left after five minutes. And I just sort of said, okay, you know, my job here as a New Yorker style reporter is to see people up close, really get a feel for who they are when they're on their own and when their mask starts to slip. And I can't do my job if I am constantly showing my hand. Now that that felt weird and conflicted, but I felt like I would get a better, I I was better servicing the reader by putting it in the book than by just doing it in the moment. You were not there to gawk, as you said, or just merely to do a kind of light sociological observation of these people. What was your goal? What were the questions that were driving you in exploring this subject? I was worried about the purely ethnographic. I mean, I like a lot of books that are pretty purely ethnographic and just sort of showing what a subculture is or does, as you say, the the more gonzo thing. I wanted to stay away from that, particularly in our charged moment. I wanted to do something that had a little bit more synthesis and analysis in it. And so the questions, well, really one of the basic questions was just, okay, the reason techno-utopianism is in the subtitle of the book is we had this moment in the early 21st century when a bunch of young guys, like a, a handful of young men, uprooted everything we knew about how information was was disseminated in our society. They disrupted, they innovated, they moved fast and broke things. They had no plan for what would supplant those things. Even when they were asked, they didn't have a clear vision of what this utopian future would be like. They just assumed, we'll topple everything, we'll clear out all the cobwebs of traditional hierarchical means of communication, and then something better will automatically take its place. And that, to me, was the underlying question of the book, that this, this tacit 
and even sometimes explicit faith in American exceptionalism and in the arc of history always kind of automatically, inevitably bending toward justice that leads people to have really dangerously naive politics and dangerously naive plans for their technological future. You know, I mean, we don't think of things like Facebook and Twitter and Reddit as being inherently political, but, you know, I spent a lot of time reconstructing how those things came into being, and I spent a lot of time physically immersing myself in the offices of Reddit in particular and watching how they do have a tacit ideology that, that motivates them. And the ideology was the marketplace of ideas will sort it all out. And this book was really trying to prove demonstratively that that is not the case. The marketplace of ideas has <laughs> failed to sort it out. A kind of libertarian approach to the Internet. Yeah. They were proudly techno-libertarian. They were very into, you know, laissez-faire above all. And, you know, it sounds really nice to say, as Twitter always said, we're the free speech wing of the free speech party. That obviously, in a vacuum, all things being equal, being pro-free speech is great. It's just when you don't hold that intention with other things and when you don't imagine in your mind's eye how dark and weird and bad things can get. Not that they will automatically. I mean, I don't want to replace the arc of history bending toward justice with an equally sure faith that the arc of history will bend toward terror. And I mean, I'm not that much of a pessimist. I'm just trying to replace our faith in inevitability with one of what I call in the book contingency, where lots of different things can happen. And you kind of have to have guardrails in place in case something weird happens. Right. And who would have thought, given that motto for Twitter, that they would have put a ban on political advertising? Yeah. I mean, we have come so far, way farther than even when I was shopping this book proposal around. Things have changed so much in terms of you know, to use another kind of stock phrase, the the way the Overton window on these issues has moved, it has been really surprising to me. And look, it's not naturally, you you can't expect people to anticipate everything. But, you know, one of the analogies I, I draw is to hosting a party. When you start a social media company, they like to think of themselves as a town square or, you know, public criers or whatever. But I think the best analogy is, you know, you start a party, you open the doors, And right from the beginning, you're making decisions. Like, do you card people? Do you have exit signs in case there's a fire? These are all design decisions. And when you design your party around pure openness, pure anonymity, pure fun and chaos, you might have a real fun party for the first few hours. But then if 2.4 billion people show up at your party and and you don't have exit signs anywhere, things are going to go bad pretty quick. Well, it seemed like they keep shifting, and they, by they, I mean the majority of these for-profit tech companies, shifting their argument, and that first they were saying, by and large, universally, it's not our responsibility, we don't police anything. Then they moved towards, okay, yes, we will police things, we will regulate things, sometimes better than others, and some platforms better than others. And then it becomes, we don't have the resources, which is perhaps laughable in the case of a giant like Facebook to adequately police all this stuff. But I guess my question is, is it their job to police this stuff? Is it the government's job? Like, who can take care of this problem of hate speech and and the rampant abuse that occurs online? This is another place where I think the party analogy is somewhat helpful. It's not a perfect analogy, but, you know, if you're hosting a party, there might be times when you need to call the cops, you know, if there are Russian state actors infiltrating your party by illegal means, or if there are people passing around illegal material, then okay, laws are being broken and you know you need to handle that in a specific way. Other times, it's just kind of on you because you started this party, 
you set the tone of the party, you decided what music to play and all the rest of it, and it's kind of on you. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a legal responsibility. It might just be kind of a, a, a personal ethical responsibility to step up and say, yeah, I built this thing and I should make sure it, it's functioning. And that's why I spent so much time in the office of Reddit. When you are up close to this stuff and you see how it works, you see how messy and human it is. I mean, the guy, so Reddit was started by Alexis Ohanian and Steve Huffman. They built a very raucous warehouse party and then they left and went and did other things and started other companies. And then Huffman came back and said, I'm going to take over as CEO and try to fix this. In 2015, he said, this is going off the rails. I'm going to try to fix it. And I sat with him after Charlottesville. I mean, to their credit, they let me in in a way that companies never, ever do to really just sort of sit in the office and watch as these things unfolded. So I was in the room after Charlottesville when they said, these Nazis have been using our platform to organize rallies where violence is occurring. This is unacceptable. We need to rewrite our rules to get them off our platform. And they opened their laptops and they all sat in a room and they literally ate free snacks and cheese sticks and drank kombucha and went around deleting Nazi subreddits and sort of debating, well, this one has a lot of swastikas, but some of them seem to be in historical context. You know, this might mm. be just a historian. Maybe we should leave this one up. And it's, it's really messy and tricky. I mean, it's not really a, a polemic-driven book, so I don't advocate for much of, it, of in the way of specific policy because I think that's frankly just short-sighted. I think the first step is to really just see where we are clearly before we start writing the language of specific congressional bills or something. But one thing that I do want to make clear is just how you can't just arrogate all power to the few people who happen to be good at coding and start these companies and say, okay, we are going to place our infinite trust in them that they will fix it. I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg to fix it. I don't necessarily trust the government to fix it. I don't place all my faith in one solution. I just think that we have to move away from this airy, abstract language of the marketplace of ideas will take care of it for us. And, you know, in the long run, these are just mere bumps in the road. I mean, this is the way some of these guys still talk about this. If you listen to the way Mark Zuckerberg talks about free speech, he continues to rely on these abstractions and these assumptions that, well, many bad things are happening now, but in the long run, it will all work itself out. Right. And like, dude, at a certain point, when you've got Trump and Bolsonaro and Duterte and Brexit and all these things, like, again, I'm not saying that the arc of history will inevitably bend toward proto-autocracy. I'm just saying that you got to get the inevitability stuff out of the way and actually think about where we are specifically. That's why I spent so long really, really doing the fly on the wall thing. It was not because I'm a masochist and I wanted to be away from my family. It's because I think you need to see it clearly, see it up close, and see it in a kind of holistic narrative way before you have any idea how to even start. I mean, going back to that party analogy, it's different from a private party, really, in that you're sort of on public grounds. It's like it's like throwing a personal party on a beach where you, you, you have to get a permit. You have a certain number of people that need to be there. You know, there are ordinances in terms of noise. And so it's not entirely private. Well, how could it be? I mean, if you literally have two billion people there, I mean, it, the fact that we have trouble imagining how there could be a party with two billion attendees is exactly the problem, right? We can't imagine that because it's not possible. And, and so when, when these companies use phrases like, we're a community, they're not. But they were built as trying to be communities, and then these things just blew up beyond their control. I mean, they're, in the early days of, of Reddit, they were passing around internal company memos when they were aware of 
really creepy, terrible, misogynist things that were happening, things that even bordered on potentially child pornography. And their response usually back in the early days was, look, if there's a clear violation of U.S. law, we'll take it down. Otherwise, we believe in free speech. In the very early days of the Internet and going back to when it was largely used in academic and sort of computer science circles, but even a little bit later than that, anonymity was often seen as a positive thing. It could enable someone to come out of the closet or to explore a new gender identity or to get out into the open fears or ideas and share things with others. But has anonymity, in fact, turned into a darker force it has both elements. I think we, we can now see the downside of anonymity very clearly in ways that maybe people couldn't in the early days. But again, I think these things are always intertwined. I think there are, to quote the title of the book, there are both pro-social and anti-social elements to all these innovations, to the innovation of anonymity, to the innovation of the ability of groups to gather and form in an instant. I, I don't discount the pro-social facets of that and the ways that the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and all these things could not have happened without these same forces being in play. So I don't think it's that something like anonymity is inherently good or bad. I think, you know, Facebook has never had anonymity and Facebook is a really dangerous platform in many, many ways in, in slightly more subtle ways. So I don't think the fixes are going to be easy. I think we've built ourselves a really, really bad system. I see it sort of like the way we've built cities around cars as if cars didn't have negative externalities, and then we suddenly discovered carbon pollution. I mean, I think it's that big. You know, we've built our information systems around virality and emotional engagement and addictiveness and all these other things as if they were just sort of free. And we now see how when you create viral systems around what's going to grab people most immediately by the amygdala, it doesn't make for a good informational system. I mean, and the other thing I should say is, a lot of the people in my book, almost all the people in my book, were not anonymous. They weren't Russian state actors. They weren't anonymous trolls. When I contacted them, they said, yeah, come sit in my living room and, and watch me do this. I sat next to a guy in California, and he would sort of say, you know, this was pre-election. He would just say, well, how can I damage Hillary Clinton's reputation today? Hmm. And he would sort of make something up. Let's, let's insinuate that Hillary Clinton has... Parkinson's, even though obviously there's no evidence for that. He would just sort of create the insinuation. He would open his iPad. He would go on Periscope on this live streaming app and, and say, hey, guys, today we're going to make this association between Hillary and disease. What hashtag should we use? A thousand of his kind of super fans would come up with a hashtag. They would then all go to Twitter at the same time, post that hashtag, make it trend, and then it's off to the races. Then once it's trending on Twitter, then journalists see it. It's on the Drudge Report. It's on Fox News. Then once it's on Fox News, it leaps over to the other TV networks, almost to the point where I could open the newspaper in the morning and go, that story is in my newspaper because of what I watched this guy do yesterday afternoon when I was next to him in his living room. And none of that is anonymous or illegal or even against the rules of any of the platforms. It's just how they were designed. Were you surprised at how concerted it was and how sophisticated it was in terms of their ability to metastasize this this information? Yes, it was very concerted. Sometimes it wasn't all that sophisticated, though. I mean, there are very, very intricate tools of micro-targeting that can, you know, pick out people's psychological profiles. And But another term I kind of just invented for this stuff was macro-targeting. You know, it, it's the kind of thing that they were doing could kind of work on anyone at any time. It was just they knew how to hit people at emotional flashpoints of rage and disgust and confusion and 
once you learn a trick like that, it's very, very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, when you've built entire informational systems that are designed to perpetuate things that are engaging and you have citizens who have decided that they are going to make that their main skill, it's very hard to say, oh, those people you know, shouldn't be on these platforms because they're not violating the rules. They're just using them really, really well to do things that ultimately are destructive. And I should say, these are people who, you know, the guy I was just mentioning is like a lawyer who's, you know, very well-spoken and he was about 40 years old when I met him. You know, these aren't all just anonymous teens in their basements. Right. And every person who I spent time with had weirder, more specific details than I could have imagined. I mean, that guy was married to a woman who was of Iranian descent. And so the white nationalists were suspicious of him for that reason. Did you find yourself like wanting to armchair psychologize a lot of these people? I didn't want to only do that. But yeah, there were definitely times where I had to reconstruct just kind of how they got to this moment. And it was a very fine line for me between excuse and understanding. I mean, none of the information I got made me go, oh, well, you know, now these propaganda campaigns that they're engaged in, you know, don't seem so bad after all. But again, I do think if we want to see this moment clearly, we do have to understand why people are doing it and specifically how they're doing it, because there is a huge information asymmetry that the alt-right and the alt-light exploits on a daily basis. They know how the left works. They know how what they call the normies work. And by that, they don't just mean the left. They mean the left, the right, the neocons, the National Review. They mean everyone who we think of as the traditional spectrum of American politics. They stand outside of all that and study it obsessively and try to hijack it and successfully hijack it. And because the normies don't study what they're doing, their playbook is kind of out there in the open, but nobody's reading it. So this is a way for us, and by us, I use that very broadly, meaning everyone other than the people in your book, to understand them as well as they apparently understand us. Exactly. And, you know, I, I sort of had that moment several times where I was like, I don't really know what my us is exactly, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty comfortable defining my us as being not you guys. And in, in a lot of cases, it wasn't even really a political thing per se. I mean, because a lot of their energies, you know, some of them are true ideologues, but others are chaos agents or opportunists, or, you know, they're trying to sell nutritional supplements. I mean, it really, it, it's really a range. And there were times when I sort of thought, well, maybe I, as an objective journalist, should really be reserving my judgment and, you know, not putting a finger on the scale. And then there were other times where I went, you know, I'm not going to make stuff up about these people. I'm not going to cast dispersions about them that aren't merited. But like, I have eyes and ears, I have a brain, I have feelings about their desecration of traditional, just not even traditional, just basic human decency and American norms. I, I, I don't have to merely sit there mutely and transcribe what they say. So it, the book did become a little bit more first person and a little bit more sort of frank about my judgments of these people, which felt a little bit strange as a quote-unquote mainstream journalist, but I also right. felt like it would have been a bit dishonest to not include that. Well, I think the book is a fine lesson in how to conduct journalism in a very difficult realm, as well as offering insight into that world. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Andrew Morantz is the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation.
Last year, we did something really fun on the podcast around the same time of year, and we are doing it again. Please join us on Friday, November 22nd at the Time Center in New York City for a special live podcast announcing the 10 best books of the year. I will be there, of course, as will many of the editors at the book review and some surprise guests. We will reveal live at the podcast our 10 best books. We'll also talk about some that almost made the cut but didn't quite, some of our personal favorites, and a lot more. If you're interested in coming to the event live, you can visit timesevents.nytimes.com for tickets and details. And of course, you can hear it here on the podcast. Gail Collins is here to talk about her new book, No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. Gail, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. I have to get right to the question of old and older. What's an older woman? How is it different from an old woman? (laughs) Well, what interested me was how you define all those things. I mean, basically, you're talking about middle age or, or old age. And I got interested in this first when I was reading for another book, a letter from one of the early colonists back to England. And the colonists were all guys. And they were just asking for wives. Please, 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 wives. And their requirements were that the women be civil and under 50 years of age. Hmm. And then you move up into the 1800s, and suddenly if you're in a city, if you're 18 years old and you're not married, you're an old maid. And so it goes up and down and in and out. So that was a sign of, like, despair among the colonists, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, but even the definition of middle age has shifted, right? Totally, yeah. I I don't—and I don't know that people even use it as much anymore because just the idea— you know, that used to be the whole vision of your life if you were a woman was that— you got married, you had children, and once the children were grown, you were old, done. You're saying that it shifts. Like, where is it now? And how did you approach your book with this shifting definition of what Well, that was the thing I was sort of looking at. One of the things through the whole time is what counted as old and then what did women do when they got to what was regarded as old and how did they use it, how did they fight it? Now, my final conclusion about all of these issues is that if you're part of the economic mainstream, if you're building assets, if you work, if you are seen as part of the community that's making things richer, better, whatever, then you're not old. You might be aged. <laughs> okay. So so in other words, for women then, until you retire or stop fundamentally taking care of someone who is not retired, you are not old. Right. All right. We'll take that. So neither of us is old <laughs> or older. Babies. Okay. Also, who's doing the defining? Society, the media, basically, it's the media again. You know, everything changes in the history of every place once the mass media arrives. Before Mm -hmm. that, the only person that everybody got information from was the minister. And other than that, it was your family. But then suddenly the mass media comes in and it's everything is transformed and your standards of what to do are different and your goals are different and your judgments about who's old and who isn't are different. But the media has changed too. And I guess as the media became more female, perhaps the definition of an older woman maybe got a little friendlier. But now that the media is so young too, in terms of the median age of people working in many internet-centric newsrooms, maybe it's not so good. 
Well, anything that means more media to me is good. So <laughs> there can't possibly be bad. Of course, there's parts of the new media that, that's completely dominated by young people. But you look out there and you already see people of different ages carving out their places, creating their websites, figuring out their – and I'm, you know, I'm absolutely convinced in 20 years – you look out there, it's going to be the same for everybody. Everybody's grown up with the media and they'll be using it in the same ways all their lives. So in this book, you look at older women in American history. Did you do the full sweep of history? You started in the colonial days? I started with that first colonist guy writing back saying, please, please, somebody under 50, that's all I want. And then I kind of trotted along. One of the things that interested me was the way women used stuff, the way they figured out ways to get around the definitions that were in their time period. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was desperate to go out and mobilize and and campaign against slavery. And women weren't allowed to give speeches. It was just, you were a harlot. You mm-hmm. were a Jezebel. If you were out there in public trying to speak and Opening get attention. Your mouth. Can't be doing that. So what she basically did, she figured out, was she said, ah, yes, that's so true. You have to stay home and take care of your children. But now mine are raised. I did my part. And I'm a grandmother. A grandmother. See my gray hair? I'm a grandmother. And once she really sold that, here, I'm a grandma coming to talk to you about grandma stuff, she could do anything. You know, She's in playing cards in the middle of the night on trains with soldiers. She's standing around with large groups of people talking about abolition and women's rights and divorce reform, but always sort of in that little context of look at my gray hair. It liberated her. And once that started, her friends started writing odes to menopause. Hmm. Oh, glorious menopause. Now we can go do stuff. This is fantastic. Do you think in a way by saying, I'm done with my main work here and I have gray hair, I'm therefore maybe not threatening to you. And so I can say these things? Absolutely. And then I can go out and say these things and mobilize you about things like abolition, (laughs) women's rights, divorce reform. It's not as if she was going out giving pie recipes once she got out there. But was she written off because she was an older woman or do you think that that helped her? I think it totally helped her. It was a way women at that time were just completely marginalized Mm -hmm. out of the public world. And she figured out a way to get in there. Unlike other women, unlike women other ages, she figured out the first way to get in and take part in the public life of America. And did the public and the media, as you say, since they defined older women, did they speak about her in those terms? Well, it depended on where you went. There's, and, and, of course, there were a lot of other women trying to do that, too. Susan B. Anthony went around and did the same things. But if you look at the media reports about her, it's that skinny spinster Susan B. Anthony with her 200-year-old bonnet came by today and da-da-da-da-da. But she was still doing it. You know, you figure it out ways. Do you think that the way that media describes, and again, obviously it's not a monolith, the media, but the way in which they've described older women, has it changed? Has it gotten better? In some ways, it doesn't even come up anymore. If If you're a woman who is doing certain kinds of stuff, if you are out there and you're, you've got, say, a business or you're selling some new product or you're creating some new social movement about whatever, about your community, any of those things that aren't actually about you as a woman but you as a member of society, you as a person in the economy, then people – can do stuff. People do mention how old Jane Fonda is when she keeps getting arrested, but right. it's not like that's the first they thing just on your did, mind. Like yeah. last week, yeah. right? Are there periods in which it's been particularly difficult to be an older woman yeah. in America? Yeah. The periods when 
the economy just doesn't want you at all. During World War II, for instance, there was nobody more popular than older women because the guys were gone. Younger women who had children did not want to work. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, oh, there are all these odes to 80-year-old riveters. That's not just Rosie. It's Josephine, who's 80, who's down there in Alabama making planes and stuff. You couldn't get enough of them. And then there are other periods when you don't really need other people in the workforce, like, say, the 20s and the 50s and the 60s, when the old it gets old really fast. The book is filled with the stories of many women who were prominent or rose to prominence or became particularly well accomplished when they were older. In a way, it, it feels like this is a story that's really told through those women. Was that deliberate when you were sort of thinking about how you would tell this you look at all the statistics and all the other stuff, but the way my experience is anyway, if, if you want to talk to regular readers about what's going on, you tell it through people. You tell it through the stories. That's what they always remember. And some of them are regular people too, right? These are not all well-known women. No, no. But they become unregular enough that I managed to run into them somewhere along the way in what I'm writing. But Were there women that you knew going in? I'm definitely going to write about these women, even um, relatively unknown women but that you were aware of, that you felt like their stories needed to be part of this. You know, I got to tell you, I, they're always a surprise to me when I do these projects and I read these books and I look over all these materials. I think, wow, who knew? But the person right now who is not at all unfamous, who I become obsessed with, who I talk about frequently, it's really weird, is Martha Washington. I mean, I never thought I would be a Martha Washington discusser. <laughs> I mean, she never came up. But if you look at her life, she... She's married. She has children. She Her husband dies. She's wealthy. Mm -hmm. She marries George. They never have children. So George is her second husband. Yes. And George has always tried to sort of pin that on Martha, but it's very clear it was because George was couldn't have children for one reason or another. But they loved each other very much. They were very happy. She ran Mount Vernon, which was fixed up with her money, taking it all of George's political and, you know, economic friends and everybody else who came by, 300 guests a year she was averaging doing this. She was running a massive hotel, taking care of everybody. Martha does all this stuff. Martha is at Valley Forge. Martha is encouraging the troops. Martha does anything you can imagine for George Washington's life, for his career, for the revolutionary cause. And then when people go back in the media and start writing about George Washington, the woman they talk about is George Washington's mother. Hmm. Because George and Martha never had children. So Martha doesn't really count, even though all these other things happen. You weren't counting. And George Washington didn't like his mother. That's the part of it that really knocks me out. But when you see images of Valley Forge, we do not hear or see pictures of Martha being no, there. No, but she was there. She was, you know, taking care of soldiers, knitting stuff, you know, doing all the things she could to help the troops. She wasn't out fighting, obviously. And I don't think she was very cold while she was there, but she was still there lending support. What, what do you think is behind your interest in her, your fascination with her? First of all, I didn't know anything about her. And then I, reading the idea of what a woman had to go through in those days if she was an upper-class woman to entertain people just fascinated me. And there's, uh, you also had to, at least if you were Martha, entertain people after dinner with a good conversation because George would sneak off to his study and leave her stuck with all of these guys that he had brought into the house to keep them entertained. And one of them did write back saying what a good time he had talking with Martha and that 
if things went on like that, that he could imagine himself not resenting the company of older women. Hmm. And how old was she at that time? She was 62 and he was 58. Mm-hmm. But it was she was an old woman and he was a rambunctious young man. So Martha Washington is one of the well-known figures in your book, even if we don't know her that well, or most of us don't. Tell us about one of the less well-known women that you chose to write about. One woman that I never had heard about before, before I stumbled on her, was stagecoach Mary Fields. Got these names. Yes. And the great thing about, besides the fact that if you're involved in the economy, you're important no matter what age you are. If you're in an area where women are scarce, you, you rule no matter what age you are. Stagecoach Mary Fields was in Montana back in the 1800s. And we think maybe the first female postal service worker ever. She's delivering the mail in Montana. She's this six-foot-tall, 50-odd-year-old African-American woman going through Montana. And when the horse could not make it through the snow, she would just walk through the snow to deliver the mail because that mail was going to go through no matter what. And when she retired, she opened up a laundry in her hometown in Montana and Everybody loved her, and she was allowed to go into the bar and drink. No other woman in the city town was allowed to go and drink in the bar except her, but the saloon was hers. And one day while she was in the saloon, a guy walked in and said, I just picked up my laundry, and I'm not paying you for it. And he walked out the door. She followed him out the door, decked him with one punch. Wow. Came back in and said, his bill is paid. (laughs) So how did you come across her story, like in the crime blotter? (laughs) (laughs) At one of my Western women, there's a book about everything out there, which is so wonderful. And you don't really appreciate that you can find a book about black female pioneers in the West. But if you're interested, you can. So you're a columnist for The New York Times. In your weekly column, you have to constantly keep your eye on what's happening or what's happened in the last five minutes because everything is going so fast. Is it sort of a break to be able to go back in history, to lean back and to take this longer view when working on books like this? Well, you could just say that Donald Trump does not appear anywhere at all in uh, my history. Except I think once in an example that was in a media sometime of men who married younger women. That was <laughs> that was about it. It's exciting to do two different things. I like I love writing the column. I've always loved writing the column. And the great thing about the column is it's done. And it's the end of the day, and it's done, and it's really gone away, and nothing you can do about it. It's not like a book that's always sort of slurking around there in the corner. <laughs> well, another thing that struck me, and again, I'm going back to your subtitle, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. This is a book about American women and about older women in America. And I'm wondering, what in particular did you find about the way in which we in this country view, treat, handle older women? It is different and same at different times. When we were starting out as a nation, of course, it was very different because anytime if you were mobile, you were, <laughs> you were great and older didn't really matter. And farm wives were some of the most valuable people in society because they were creating so much wealth, really. They were growing stuff and making stuff and selling stuff and trading stuff. And then in the cities, things changed again like that. But there's almost always been in American history some place you can go to where there's something new happening. That makes a lot of difference. But it seems to me that in this country and I'm everywhere around the world, people and women especially are judged very much by their looks and that age in this country has often been defined by appearance with regard to to women and sort of the extent to which they're esteemed or not esteemed. So it's interesting that at a time when women seem to be doing more at an older age, that at the same time you have this huge industry geared towards 
Making them look younger. Well, it's yeah. true. And I, I've run into so many women who said that they've had some kind of cosmetic surgery because the other women in their work that they're competing against are all having cosmetic surgery. So you don't want to look like you're not making an effort or that you're falling apart or whatever in a way that your competitors don't. So, uh, And it's, it's weird. And it's changed so much. It used to be that doing anything artificial to your face was strange and weird. But now things like Botox are very normal. And when you talk about cosmetic surgery, you're talking about it really seriously, getting in there and rearranging stuff. And it is what it is. But I'd like to think that we'll get past that, too, and move on to some different level. Well, in your book, you focus very much on what these women do, not on how they look. I want to just, because I mentioned earlier the great names of these women, go to one other story. And some of the names are great. The Grimkey sisters. Oh, my God. I love the Grimkey sisters. All right. All right. Let's end there. Tell us about the Grimkey sisters. The Grimkey sisters and if I, I got a plug for a book. There's a book by Gertrude Lerner about them that is absolutely fantastic beyond all belief. They're born in the South. They're born in a slave-owning family. They're upper-class women. And they decide, this is before the Civil War, it's wrong. And they go to the North and become speakers for abolition. Now, how you do that, how you're in a place where everybody thinks one way and suddenly just one day you look at it and say, no, no, this is not going to be right. I'm out of this. And then it knocks me out. But the two of them then go around the country preaching about abolition. And as happened, you know, as I said before with poor Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you couldn't do that. And what the Grimkeys did was not to try to get around it by, you know, playing tricks. They just did it. Mm -hmm. And they were bombed. Their rocks were thrown at them. The places where they were speaking were burned down, but they just kept at it and kept at it. And then later, Angelino, one of them, got married. And the idea at the time that, first of all, a woman who was preaching about women's rights would get married at all and then get married when she's older just was amazing. And nobody could believe it. And people wrote to Theodore Weld, the guy, and said, I just don't want to speak to you anymore. This is wrong, 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 wrong. But they were very happy. The three of them, the two sisters and Theodore, set up a little commune where they lived, and they took in people. They lived a very vegan kind of life, very healthy life, and this is going on for a long while. And then suddenly, at one point, Angelina reads someplace about a guy, a black guy who's, who's out giving speeches, whose name is Grimkey, too. And she writes to him, and he writes back and said, well, yes, I'm actually the son of your brother and one of his slaves, which was, mm. of course, not at all unusual to have, yeah. have people doing that back then. And normally what then would have happened would have been she would have said, oh, that's very interesting, gone on with her life. But she said, oh, my God, we have a relative. She, they brought him in. They kept him until he was old enough to go out into the world, and then they paid for his law school. They had no money whatsoever, but they paid for his law school because he was their nephew then, and he became a, a, you know, a great leader in the black community. Real Pioneers, and just two of many in this book. It's called, again, No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History by Gail Collins. Gail, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Mm-hmm. 
Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? There is an interesting piece in Publishers Weekly about an effort by independent booksellers to take on Amazon. Of course, independent booksellers have really struggled with e-retailing. It's been one of the biggest challenges facing the industry. And, of course, the convenience of Amazon and the ease of it and the way that they can discount and ship quickly has made it hard particularly for independents, to keep up with them. And in terms of things like pre-orders, which are very popular now, you know, the minute your favorite author announces a book, people go and order it because they get excited. A lot of the sales often go to Amazon. So there was a proposal put forward for a site called Bookshop. It's a mobile-friendly website. In other words, it'll be easy to use on your phone as well, that will provide one-click ordering to rival Amazon. And it will also sell digital audiobooks, which are an incredibly popular format that have been growing. And independents have also kind of failed to capture a lot of the market on that because, of course, Amazon owns Audible, which is sort of the handiest, easiest, and the biggest of the audiobook retailers. So this will be starting in January, and it'll be very interesting to see how it affects pre-sales for authors in terms of what percentage of those pre-sales are going to independents as opposed to Amazon, and also just to see what will happen if independents get a bigger piece of the audiobook market. Do we know how competitive it will be with Amazon with regard to pricing? Yes, I think it, it, according to Publishers Weekly, they are planning to discount, but not as heavily as Amazon. They apparently don't plan to discount more than 10%. They're going to try various methods for free shipping. So they, I think they hope to compete on that level. So it'll be really interesting to see if independents, which have kind of individually tried to get a little piece of the market, but it, I think their big advantage really is community building and being a physical space where people can come in and browse and curation and events. And so this is sort of additive, but it, it probably will give them a leg up, particularly with digital audio. Where should people go? What should they Google when the new year begins? So this uh, this is called Bookshop. And it'll be up, you know, it's going to be a mobile platform and an an online platform. So the website, I don't believe, is live yet, but I think it'll be up at the beginning of the year. All right. Well, more ways to get your books is always good. Alexander, thank you. Thanks for having me. The critics have been elusive these last few weeks, but they are here in the studio now. We have Dwight Garner, Jennifer Salai, and Carl Sagel. Hey, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. All right. It's been a while. Dwight, you have moved to West Virginia. I have for a year to, to research a book, and I'm back for the pot. Just I drove all the way just to be here with you all. It's great to be back, I will say. Excellent. It's great to see your faces. It's a good group we have here at the Book Review. Excellent. Well, what, what what's the group like in West Virginia? <laughs> well, you know, I'm still finding my way, you know. I have family there that I love. You know, West Virginia, like New York, they're the places, at least for me, where I like to hang out. And those places are bookstores, libraries, in the evening, perhaps a nice dive bar, you know. And you find your place and you meet the people there and you kind of work from there, which is how you make community anywhere. People are good there. I just got back from Kansas City and Columbus and also felt like I'd found the book people in both of those places and the book venues. And the libraries were fantastic. And there's this amazing museum that's in development that is going to be about children's literature 
in Kansas City called The Rabbit Hole, which tells the history of children's literature and this immersive experience. It's built in this old factory, and it's this huge space where they have created rooms. Like they have the school bus from Christian Robinson and Manta La Pena's Newbery Award-winning picture book on Market Street. And they have a hole where the steam shovel is from Mike Mulligan and the steam shovel. And they have a rabbit hole that you go down in a goodnight moon room where it goes from day to night and all kinds of things. But the best part of it was, because the museum is sort of still under construction, their archives, their library that they're using to create this full panoramic history of children's literature. And the books in there, so many of them are out of print, but I just kept taking photographs of them. Like there was a one that I think is out of print, a Maurice Sendak, that's called Let's Be Enemies. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, they don't make children's books like that oh, anymore. Oh, and God. then there's this great one by Wanda Gog, who wrote Hundreds of Millions of Cats or whatever that, that, that famous book is. But this one is called The Funny Thing, and it's just about this really odd creature and someone trying to persuade it to eat anything other than dolls, which is what the creature wants to eat, you know, much to the chagrin of of all the young children around him. Well, someone age. should do a little anthology of dark kids' books. Because oh, my God. What is the title again of the one you mentioned? The Funny Thing or Let's Be Enemies? Let's Be Enemies. Nick Toshis, who just died, the rock critic and novelist, wrote a YA novel called, I think, Johnny's First Cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I haven't read it. I just have – I bought it, of course. Cause I, you see that title, you're like, I'm, I'm buying that book. Indian fo- like, stories for children are incredibly dark. Yeah. And it's all about then the child had to go into the forest, watched mom die – follow the jaguars. It's very, it's very, very grim, these traditional stories. There's a great guide online to terrifying French children's books, which if you Google, like I think it was in The Guardian, terrifying French children's books, you'll find it. And the books themselves are, you know, really dark. But then there's a very funny commentary and translation. But there are things like, you know, the nightmare that never left and like all alone and death comes to me and just, and, and, but these American (laughs) ones are quite good too. I mean, Here's one by the author of A Tree is Nice, which I think we probably all remember from our childhood. And I don't know if this is her follow-up or, you know, where she started, but this one is called The Mean Mouse and Other Mean Stories. And it's just got a vicious-looking rodent on the cover. That's a woman who got tired of promoting The Tree is Nice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rabbit hole. And I, I very – two bad ants. Here's another one. Um, I'm very much feeling good about literary culture two in the Midwest. Two bad ants. You know, good titles are hard. You know, a good title is really something. If you have a good title for your book, you're halfway home. What's the title of your next book, I don't know yet. I'm kicking it around. But I have some ideas. But I think of titles all the time. And I think, if only I were writing that book, you know. I heard someone give a talk the other day. And and she used the phrase, not my story to tell. And I thought, what a great title. That is a great. Isn't that great? Oh, my God. And if you take it, I want you to buy me at least like a dinner somewhere. (laughs) Um, Because I I don't have the book to do it. But. Mine's going to be called Dwight's Story. I'm just <laughs> cutting my chance. <laughs> or a song. Okay, you singer-songwriters out there, not my story to tell. That's your next hit. I loved the title of Michael Ian Black's first book, which was called You're Not Doing It Right. That's pretty good. Which I think is a very mm. nice title. That's pretty good. Jen, what's your tell-all going to be called? Oh, God, I don't know. That's a good I, title. I, <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Oh, God, I don't know. I remember, I, I don't even, I, I didn't even read the book, but I remember there was a book that came out probably about a decade ago or 15 years ago called You Remind Me of Me. And mm. that was something that mm. I always, I, I would never use it, but mm. that that was something that always stuck in my head. Mm. 
All right. Let's talk about the titles of the books that you reviewed this week, starting with you, Jen. You reviewed two books. I reviewed two books, both of them about housing in the United States. One of them is called Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz, and the other is called Race for Profit by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. And both books look at essentially how government money, which is often used to sort of infuse the housing market in the United States, how what often ends up happening is that it ends up really sort of fueling and supporting private speculators who are using this public money to essentially buy up homes and how the people that this money is supposed to help are often left to fend for themselves in the end. And so Glance. Glance's book, Home Records, looks at what's happened in the past 10 years since the housing bubble burst in 2008. And so he looks at the way in which the stimulus money first under Obama and now with Donald Trump, how that money was essentially used to create this new, what he calls a new breed of landlord called a corporate landlord who buys up all these houses so nothing you know, gets better. Nothing it? nothing gets better. I mean, this this is sort of the interesting thing with these books where, you know, Taylor's book looks at a very different era. It looks at, you know, really it sort of homes in on the five years or so after the 1968 Fair Housing Act, after redlining was formally ended. And, you know, sh- she points out how government money back then, which was ostensibly supposed to expand home ownership and replace, you know, this very racist system of exclusion that existed before with redlining, how that in effect turned into what she calls a a system of predatory inclusion. And so what ended up happening is these real estate speculators would flip these homes, which existed in the city, which had previously been condemned to be demolished even in some cases, and would, you know, slap a paint job on them, get a fraudulent inspection, and then sell it to somebody who is often very poor, who would be left to deal with the fallout and deal with the repairs cost. And then the house would often be foreclosed on again, and then flipped again. And so you sort of see how this enormous market, which you know, a huge part of the American economy is based on how there's, you know, there's a lot of distortions in it and how certain regulations don't get heated or enforced. There was a book that came out a couple years ago by Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law, Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. I think you either reviewed it or you you worked on it at the book review. Yeah, that's a really great book. What Rothstein does in that book, he really looks at how redlining, the history of redlining in the United States. And what Taylor does in her book is she really focuses on when that system ostensibly ended because there's, you know, there's reports coming out now that it still exists in some form in various places of the country. And so, you know, it's really sort of interesting to look at this issue, which, you know, periodically bubbles up to the public consciousness. I mean, 10 years ago, it was all anybody could really talk about when the subprime bubble burst. But, you know, these books really look at how this is an ongoing issue. And so even when we're not constantly talking about it, it's something that we should be alert to. 
Well, I think if we're going to judge those two books on a title basis only, <laughs> I'm going with Home Records. <laughs> Dwight, what did you review? You know, I reviewed a new biography of Janis Joplin, of all things. The rock critic and biographer Holly George Warren wrote it. And, you know, I feel, I felt like moving into it. I'm not a, the biggest Janis Joplin fan. I mean, I get her. I, I see why she matters in some I of her songs. I feel like you go through a Janis Joplin period. Exactly. Right? And exactly. then you don't and Sometimes really... she's too much for me. It's just a little too much. But I, this biography is quite lovely because it reduces her life to the essences and, and tells a very simple story. As I say in my review, you, it's it's sort of an Eisenhower era misfit story. I mean, she grows up in this small conservative Texas oil town. Her father works for Texaco, and um, she just never fits in. She's this, she's this tomboy. She has zits her whole life. She has hair that sticks out, and she's has an uncertain sexuality. And she's liberal, and everyone hates her. You know, just they, she just doesn't fit in at all. She's called the school slut. They they throw things at her. When she goes to the University of Texas, they have an ugliest man on campus contest, and people put her name in. They put her posters up of her all over campus for the ugliest man on campus. This, these kind of things happen to Janis Joplin throughout her life. And it's a very moving story. And, and she's tough and interesting. She's the kind of person who, when she heard Elvis Presley on the radio sing Hound Dog, she went out and found the original recording by Big Mama Thornton, who, who made the original. It went... She had she had this kind of rock, folk, blues, geekery, which is more common, at least at the time, for men than women. So she was this woman who was really unusual and could stand up to these music geeks and know more about the stuff than they did. And so she escapes and she she starts hitchhiking out west to uh, to California. She becomes famous at Threadgill's, the um, late great bar restaurant in Austin, Texas. And from there on, it, it just keeps going. But there's something about Janice that's very moving. You know, she was she was kind of a, a, a real person. And she had a lot of holes in her she had to fill with drugs, of course. She died of a heroin overdose when she was 27. And Holly George Warren, I've not read a book of hers before. I don't think I've read some of her rock criticism. I've read it forever in Rolling Stone and elsewhere. But she does a really nice job of it and has a nice job of quoting other people. And I just found it really interesting. It is funny about books. I was realizing as I was reading this book that it had special resonance for me in a way that I couldn't, I couldn't pin down until I started thinking about my own uh, high school years. And I realized maybe all of us know a Janis Joplin, this kid who's just doesn't fit in at all. They, they're not sure they know why. Well, what are the Janis Joplin? Exactly. Well, without the, the problem is the, first, the thing for most people in the world is they have these inchoate feelings. They're, they're, we're all, so many of us are, are poets or artists and great, and nowhere to express them as Janis Joplin did. So we all know Janis Joplin's maybe who had nothing to do with this great sold feeling that they had. So I had this great sold friend, a woman, who who reminds me so much of Janis Joplin in, in high school. And she's a still a, she's a, an amazing person. But somehow reading about Janis's trials, somehow I just realized that, that I had this thing that was resonating for me. And I think we all knew that kind of person, probably, in one way or another. Farl, enough about Janis Joplin. What do you write about this week? Uh, I reviewed a book by Carmen Maria Machado. It's called In the Dream House. And Machado is a young writer. She was part of one of the writers that we selected as part of our new vanguard. Writers, women writers were sort of changing, changing writing in terms of subject matter and style. And the new book is her first memoir. It's a story of her horrifying, terrifying, abusive relationship with another woman. But she tells it in this very original way. It's told in these short sections, each in a different genre. So she'll tell, you know, one chapter in the style of a stoner comedy, another chapter in the style of a lesbian pulp novel, another one in the style of sort of like a series of philosophical um, questions. So it's a book that is constantly changing style underneath you and you kind of feel like the ground is shifting and it sort of mimics the feeling of that Machado had in this relationship of who is this person she's changing something is something is happening I cannot stop it and along with that I mean, this is just one of the kind of formal tricks she brings to bear in this book it's also written in the second person 
It's got all kinds of footnotes and ways that she's analyzing things that are happening according to old motifs in, in folktales. And as I was reading it, I mean, a lot of these things are not my favorite uh, techniques. Like, mm-hmm. I really, I, books in the second, second person, person are not for me. Fatal, fatal. Okay, wait, just mm. quick poll. Second person, how do you feel, Jen? Not good. Rarely a good idea. Rarely. It's but really hard works, to do it. But when it works, it really works. When does it work? Well, in this case, it works. Okay. In this case, it works. So, so I'm reading this, and I'm like, all of this is going to start to feel like one gimmick after another. And, you know, usually when you, and I see these many things together, it can feel like the writer is anxious about the material. That if the material doesn't feel strong enough or the story doesn't feel, you know, hasn't sort of coalesced, that's when you start to sort of decorate it with all of these other things. But one by one, it, start to, it starts to seem, or it seemed to me, that she was finding a really, really original and powerful way to, one, tell the story of a relationship in which, and I think I write in this review that, you know, no life happens in one genre. No relationship happens in one genre. And as it changes, it becomes a very different story. So very quickly, you start to feel like, okay, this thing that you're doing by switching genres on us feels not only warranted, but rather powerful and rather sort of like life. And with the second person, what happens is that, so, and we talked about this when we were making our memoir list, right? So there are always at least two people in the memoir. There's a person who the life happened to, and there's a person telling the story. So there are two narrators that you are getting. And there's a way that she addresses the younger self, the you is to her to herself, that is tender, it's severe, it's protective, it's sorrowing, that felt very, very intimate. What else should one read by Machado? This is her second book. Her first book was a, a book of short stories called Her Body and Other Parties. And again, she's somebody who's very interested in the Gothic. She's really interested in in structures, in physical structures, things like haunted houses. I mean, this, the, her memoir is about living in this this strange house with her with her partner. But she's interested in yeah different kinds of narrative structures, different stories that read like recaps of Law and Order, retellings of fairy tales, ghost stories. And that's a book that I mean, for her first book, it was incredibly accomplished. Now she takes big risks. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't work. But to see somebody really trying to remake at every stage of her, every stage of writing, whether it's a short story, whether it's a memoir, what is this form? How has it been done? How can I make it my own? Feels very thrilling to me. I recommend In the Dream House by Carbon Marie Machado. All right, before we clock out here, I want to know where do you think the second person has worked well, Dwight? Well, Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City. I Got mean, it. That's, that's, the, that's the first. I've read a couple others that were, of course, horrible. But I think Bachner's book actually still, a lot of it still stands up. The Reluctant Fundamentalist was in the second person, no? No, no, no. It's, it's How to Get Ahead in, How to Get, it's, it's How to Get oh, how how to get the Rich, rich in Rising, in rising Asia. Asia. That was in second person. Did it work for you? I, it, I mean, I love Mosin Hamid. Why did it work um, for you? There was a sense of immediacy and like you were engaged in it. You were taken into this narrative and maybe a little bit complicit. Did you not like it? I... I like which it. one are we talking about? This is the Mohsin Hamid book. Okay, how to get filthy rich and oh, rising? I reviewed good. it also in the second person, which now I feel oh, I was about to say that I did that once, and I it's, it's I don't, it doesn't. It, no, I, I'm you know Parlous, sorry yeah. every day I did it, but um, no, no, I didn't. But <laughs> I think I started. I started it in the second person. I had complicated feelings about it. I think that it was very effective in that book because it brings generally Western readers into a story that can seem very far away. Oh, the story of poverty in Pakistan, etc. But I feel like it did this other thing for readers from South Asia, where we felt like this book isn't for us. This book is something written to educate the West about Pakistan. 
So, so that's why it worked on me and not you. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I was think, taken in. <laughs> I was repulsed. No, um, but no. But it is. It's such a. It's such a bold move. It's hard to think of other maneuvers that feel automatically as self conscious. And and writers have to know that they know they're taking this risk. I was going to ask places where it's been the worst, but that seems uncharitable. No, please, let's do it. Uh, well, you tend to forget the worst. I mean, you tend to pick them up and read two pages and go ah, and run away. So you oh, don't. I really... envy your mind. You forget the worst way. <laughs> <I do>. Well, <laughs> any worse that have gotten stuck in your... I'll ponder next time. Well, you next tend not time. to finish the worst is the thing. Like you, I wrote a review once in the second person and I, I never want to see it again. I hope I can purge it from the Times' as <laughs> Oh, confess. I, did, I can't remember. It was a book about Silicon Valley and I forget what got into me. I don't know, but don't look for it, anyone. We're going to look for it, Dwight. <laughs> I know. That's, that's like Listeners, a... <laughs> please Google Dwight Garner, you, 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 and you will find uh, it. All right. Let's run down the list of what you reviewed, Dwight. Janice, a biography of Janice Joplin by Holly George Warren. Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz and Race for Profit by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. In the Dream House by Carmen Marie Machado. Parl, Jen, Dwight, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.